<laughs> they got real quiet. <laughs> am, am I on here? Good. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, it got a little. It got a little quiet after that one. Um, well, guys, again, we we'll welcome you guys to to church, and uh, I'll explain the video here in, a, in just a second. But uh, uh, if, if you weren't here last week, we're going to be continuing our sermon on lordship. And uh, and I was looking for a while to find a video that fit that topic. It's actually not very easy. <laughs> this is, like most of them were actually kind of heavy handed or or really long. Like we talk about the topic of lordship, I found several that were like eight minutes, fifteen minutes that just didn't fit. And I wanted, I was actually looking for something that was kind of short and funny to kind of break the tension a little bit, and then. This is what I found. Actually, this this is the best that I could find. Here, we'll kind of we'll, we'll, we'll ease it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, after that last one, it kind of helps. Uh, this this is another form of lordship right here. Uh, and like I said, if you weren't here last week, we were preaching. Uh, I was preaching from a question. And the question was, what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of our lives where we are now? If we want to be followers and disciples of Jesus, he needs to be Lord of our lives. And as, as the skit in the first part demonstrated, that means he's on the throne. He's on the stool. He's the one that calls the shots. Uh, he's determining our choices and the way we live our lives. But, but it's another thing, as we've talked about, to, to ask the question, what does this need to look like currently in, in, my, in my current place in life. And we're going to be continuing in the book of 1 Peter. Because this book was written as, uh, to Christians who lived in different countries. Came from different backgrounds, different walks of life. And just, just like us, we're going through all kinds of different circumstances. That if we took a quick poll of ten people here in the audience right now and asked you what's currently going on in your life, it would probably be ten different things. And just like that, these and along those lines too, the people that, that he was writing to were undergoing some intense persecution and oppression for the Romans, from the Romans. And they needed help to figure out what lordship should look like for them. And last week we covered the first two chapters, and he talked a lot about suffering and hardships, right? Yep. Fun topics for us to bring up in church. You get to come here, want to feel encouraged, and then Peter starts talking to you about all the things you're supposed to suffer as a Christian. But he also talks about, even like the song that we sang earlier, about how suffering and, and hardships, they refine us. They refine our lives to make us more like Jesus. Uh, he, we talked about uh, holiness and living a life that's set apart from the world. He talks about being righteous in spite of who's in charge. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the White House. It doesn't matter who your boss is. It doesn't matter uh, who the authorities are around you. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is who is Jesus Lord of our lives. What does that need to mean for us in those circumstances? And we ended by reading about Jesus setting us an example that being mistreated does not determine how we choose to act. Circumstances cannot ever dictate Jesus being Lord of our lives. It also says, said, you know, that, that Jesus suffered setting us an example. He died for us as an innocent man, 
and instead chose to trust God in those circumstances rather than retaliate. I don't care how, how difficult your life may feel at that time. As, somebody, as soon as somebody throws that Jesus card out there, you shut up pretty quick. And today, we're going to pick up in chapter 3, uh, specifically where he talks to, uh, to husbands and wives. And the goal of this is, is like I said, P, Peter writes this letter as five chapters trying to hit all kinds of people from all kinds of different walks of life, trying to help everybody in their current circumstances to think about lordship. So somewhere in this, in this book is something for you. And so the goal is we're going to be reading through God's word together, and I'm just going to kind of take in some pit stops to point some things out. But we want to encourage us, like Bill was talking about in the welcome, we want to participate in this. Let's not be quiet. Let's engage. Let's read. Open your Bibles. Say amen. If something hits you, you, know, you can practice kind of doing the, mmm, when something really convicts you. You know, you squint and just, mmm, yeah, that, mmm, I feel that one. But let's really engage uh, with God here this afternoon together. Amen. Today is, uh, is uh, and I want to encourage, especially the single people right now, don't tune out because we're talking about husbands and wives, because this stuff is also for you as well. All right, this is part two of life and lordship. Let's, uh, let's say a prayer and then we'll get into reading. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the chance that we have to just sit at your feet and, and kind of re- relive like the first century Christians would have, just uh, as they were, they were hearing this letter read out loud. God, uh, I pray that you help it to move our hearts, that you would help us to engage with you, God, for us to be humble to what your scriptures have to say, that you would... You'd move aside any of our preconceived notions, move me out of the way, and help us just to really uh, be with you here in the Word as we, as we revisit what Lordship needs to really look like for us. We love you so much. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in chapter 3. So go ahead and turn your Bible over there, starting in verse 1. All right, so Peter starts out says, Wives, in the same way, be sub- submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with words, without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the, and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. As the weaker partner and as heirs with you, of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I want to pause there for a minute. So what Peter does here is he turns the attention, not just from our suffering and our our general stages of life, our workplace, he turns it into our homes. And he says, husbands and wives, we've got to revisit lordship in our marriages at home. It's got to go to the home. What happens here on Sunday is great, it's important, but what happens when you go home is probably more. And he specifically addresses uh, the women first. I want to spend a little bit of time with this, because these are scriptures that oftentimes get very tangled up in our world today. 
Peter starts, starts off by talking to the women first. And he brings up two specific things for the ladies. He, he talks about submission and beauty. And with the beauty, what he's really trying to address here is something that we all know and, we, and, and the world talks about in a lot of really funky ways. But, he's, but he really is trying to address what really makes a woman beautiful. What is it? And what he's really trying to help us to understand is that beauty can never come from something on the outside. It can never come from your clothes. It can never come from the jewelry you own. It can never come from the way you wear your hair or how what color you dye it. Or anything on the outside. Amen, ladies? It says beauty comes from something. He calls it, he calls it an unfading beauty. Let those words sink into you for a second. Because the truth of the matter is, the outside stuff is always going to go away. Clothes are going to wear out. They're going to get old. You have to throw them away. You trade them out. They're not in style anymore. All those things happen. Physical beauty doesn't last. Proverbs 31 talks about that. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. He says the unfading beauty of a woman is, is her purity. Not her clothes. It's her reverence, not her jewelry. It's her gentleness and her quiet strength. I want to make sure to clarify that, because when we see gentle and quiet spirit, that can often get interpreted to something that the Bible never meant for it to be interpreted to. It doesn't mean women just sit there quietly and fold their hands in church. And just don't say the Greek words are actually incredibly powerful. I don't even have time to get into it. If you want a recommendation of a book, Kelsey can tell you. She read a very phenomenal book called The Gentle and Quiet Spirit. And it spends chapters diving into the power of these two words. And the truth is, the world actually recognizes this. It doesn't matter how beautiful a woman looks on the outside. If her life doesn't, isn't something worthy of respect, she's not really that beautiful. Take any Hollywood star or person that's in the limelight. It doesn't matter how beautiful their outward appearance is. If their life is just gross, it changes your perspective on them. Right? Because that's not really what matters. That's not really what makes somebody beautiful. Physical beauty will fade and clothes will change. But an unfading beauty is about your walk with God and your righteousness. My wife is beautiful. Amen? I am very lucky to have her. And as her husband, I better recognize when her hair changes, and I better give lots of compliments about it. But what makes my wife beautiful is not how she looks on the outside. It's the kind of woman that she is. It's her character. It's her righteousness. It's the way that she loves people. It's everything that that Peter is describing here. He said, look, don't go chasing the outward stuff. Forget the magazines. Forget social media. That's not beauty. Beauty comes from something that only can come from God. And then he brings up this word submission, which is kind of a dirty word. How dare you in this feminist PC culture? And like I said, we live in a world where this word gets incredibly misinterpreted. It doesn't mean being taken advantage of. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean shutting up. And it doesn't mean being lorded over. 
Peter actually starts, if you notice there, when he starts it, he says, he says, wives, in the same way. That same way that he's referring to is the same way that Jesus submitted himself to God. When he's talking about submission, he doesn't mean you just sit there and be a quiet, nice wife. He said, I want you to submit. I want you to entrust yourself in a greater way that takes more faith in the way that Jesus did to God when he went to the cross. Jesus chose to let God lead his life and surrender to the cross. So what that means for us, for the ladies here, it means choosing to submit first to Jesus as Lord. And then to entrust yourself to the leadership of your husband as the leader of your family. This is not subjugation, but something that takes incredible strength and faith. And it challenges fear. Actually, what it says in the end there, hopefully you caught that. It says, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Fear would say take control when it's not yours to take control of. But on the flip side of this, and I don't want to, actually, I want to elaborate on this submission thing real quick. I want to explain this because this is pretty powerful. John Mannell shared this with me years ago and I've never forgotten it. When you look at the creation story of Genesis, okay, from day one all the way to day six, because, you know, on day seven, God rested, so nothing was created at that time. God chilled out. God's creations get more and more complex. Day one, he hit the light switch, and then from there, he made more and more complex creatures through each day, all capitalizing and coming together in the greatest most beautiful, most complex creation he made on day six. Right there. <laughs> and in God's infinite wisdom, he said, I want this most complex creature to submit and yield to a less complex creature. talk about it men were simple let's just let's just leave it as it is um but as he as he explained he said you know the reason why god created when he talks about women being more complex is that god created women with a capacity for emotion and love that men don't really get in touch with women have the ability to love their children in ways that a father can't women have the ability to love their husbands in ways that a husband can't And so God decided that this emotionally complex creature should be under the submission of a less complex creature because men are able in a unique way as God created us in our simplicity to be able to withstand the arrows of the world so that our wives can enjoy, can be be able to love in a more free way than they could. Because God created women to be able to be hurt in a very unique way. Because they love in a deeper way that most men cannot understand. So when he talks about submission, this was not a subjugation. This was not the man supposed to lord over the woman. He said, man, man you were supposed to lead in a very special way because I have some, this beautiful creature set apart for something special. And if you live in your roles the right way, you guys can be a part of something incredibly special together. 
And if he doesn't leave the men out of the picture here, husbands, in a very short paragraph, he says some pretty humbling stuff. He says, husbands first, you need to be considerate of your wife. When he says consider it, he says be thinking about your wife. You consider her opinion. You consider her needs. You consider her dreams. You consider her desires. And you consider her partnership in your family. You are not to lord anything over her. And he says, and the reason that you need to consider her is because of this. You know that God looks at the two of you your worth, your place in heaven, and who you are as disciples of Jesus, exactly the same. This is not a question of value. God says, God says, husbands, you consider your wives, because in my eyes, you guys are exactly the same when it comes to my relationship with you. This is a huge deal. Because even for the Roman, you know, for the Romans, wives were property. Wives, were, wives weren't something you consider. Wives were something you own. And you subjugate them. They do what you want. And here he's talking to people that would have come even from a Roman or Greek background. He's saying, no, 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 no. Don't you dare think of your wife as a piece of property. You consider her. Because she is going to heaven just like you will. And he says, you need to respect her. What he's trying to call us to is to remember is that husbands, men, we need to treat women the same way that Jesus did. Jesus never demeaned women. He never looked down on them. He never treated them differently than the men. He loved women in a very special and powerful way. And this is such a significant thing that I hope you caught that statement at the end. He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I have a daughter, two daughters. One day, I've been, they're going to grow up and hopefully get married. I've been praying for their husbands since before they were born. If that husband was mistreating my daughter in any single way, and he were to come and ask me for something, you better bet he's not getting it. He might get the other end of a gun, but, you know... I wouldn't pull the trigger. Come on now. But if I knew that that, that that husband was treating my daughter with care, consideration, respect, if he was loving her the way that Christ loved the church, as it says in Ephesians, so you better bet, man, that, that husband, that my son-in-law can come and ask me for anything. This is what Peter's trying to get us to. He says, husbands, don't you dare think for a second that just because your wife is supposed to be submissive to you, that that gives you the free reign to do whatever you want. Because I'm her dad. And you want to come to me with prayers? You better straighten up. Because my gun's bigger than theirs. This is a significant thing. And I wanted to stop on, I wanted to make sure to hit this before we move on. Because part of what Peter is even expressing here is he says, look, our marriages are so important, they change people. Two people who have made Jesus Lord of their life, or even one person who's married that's made Jesus Lord of their life, has the ability to change somebody. 
He actually brings up here, he talks about even being married and if your spouse is not a Christian. I know that there are many people, there are, there are many spouses here in the room that are in that situation. And that's an incredibly uniquely challenging situation. But he's trying to encourage your faith here that it is possible to win over your spouse with lordship. But your husband or wife not being a disciple is not an excuse for you to be an ungodly spouse. You know, I'm really, I know last week was such a victory because we got to see Ronnie get baptized. And the powerful thing about that is that is the fulfillment of what we get to read in this scripture. For 21 years, Arcee was praying and fighting for Jesus to be Lord of her life, and it won her husband over. That's the goal. Our marriages make a huge impact in this world. Let's keep on going here. All right. Finally, all of you, do not be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the, Lord, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I want to pause there for a second. Peter again is revisiting a point that we've got to get into our hearts. Our circumstances and how other people treat us do not determine how we live as disciples. It does not matter how you feel about your boss. Or how your boss feels about you. He says, but in your hearts, you've got to decide. You've got to set apart. Revere Christ as Lord of your life. He says, matter of fact, I don't want you just to, just to tough it out and try to be hard-nosed about it. He says, man, I want you to have an answer. I want you to be able to tell people, why am I willing to stand firm? Why am I willing to say, no, I'm not going to work on Sunday? I'm not going to work on Wednesday nights because I have church. And here's why. Here's why I don't cuss at work. Because of Jesus being Lord of my life. Here's why I don't get drunk. Here's why I don't sleep around with other people. Here's why I don't whatever. Peter says, look, I don't want you just to stand firm. Give an answer. If Jesus is Lord of your life, you have an answer. You have something to offer people. Let's keep going. For Christ also suffered for once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. 
Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We'll stop there. Peter closes this chapter by reminding us that the reason why we would be willing to suffer is because Jesus suffered so that we could be close to God. And he does something interesting here. I know many of us who have been around for a while have read this scripture many times. But he compares the chaos and the sin of of the days of Noah. He goes back to Genesis. He says, remember how crazy that time was? Where the thoughts and the evil of men's hearts was, or the, the inclination of men's hearts was nothing but evil all the time. Where God was so upset by the sin of mankind, it says that he was grieved that he even made men. He says, he says, let's go back to that because that is exactly what you were like in your sinful nature. A source of chaos and grief. That's who we are left to our own devices. But thanks be to God that we get to be saved on the day that we were baptized into Christ. Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. If you were baptized as a disciple of Jesus, you were saved from that chaos. But he's trying to remind us of the bigger picture here. You weren't saved because of a baptism. You weren't saved because you went underwater. You were saved because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the resurrection. Your baptism, your act of going in the water didn't make you special. What Jesus did is what made that special. We are all sitting here in the pews because of what Jesus did for us. We've done nothing to earn or deserve our salvation or the lives we have. Let's continue reading. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless, wild living, And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What he's talking about here is he says, look, if Jesus died for you and you really believe that, you really take ownership of that, and Jesus is Lord of your life, he says, you're done. Sin is done. You don't need anything more going forward. He says, you spent enough time in the past doing what you used to do. Even for those of you that have been raised in the church like me. Now I got baptized at 14 years old. I was pretty young. It wasn't like I had this whole laundry list of sin to do. But even at 14 years old, I was done. I didn't need to sin anymore. I had done enough to realize I've done damage to myself. I've done enough to realize my sin hurts people and hurts relationships. Why would you go back to it? 
He also says, look, if you're done, guess what? People are going to think it's weird. They're not going to get it. They're not going to get why you're not going out drinking with your coworkers after work. They're going to think it's weird. Because that's what everybody does, right? Blow off steam on a Friday. You know, go hit a bar or something. He says, look, that's not on you. Jesus is Lord of your life. said, don't worry about them. Let it be weird. One day, they're going to remember this. He even brings up, he says, even if it's on judgment day, they're going to remember this. But if they see you being weird, it may lead them to change their life. Because something's different. Let's keep going. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Amen. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to pause there for a second again. He says, look, the end is coming. And if you know your time is short, if you know that every, every moment we have here on earth is borrowed time, we're not owed a second on this earth. He says, but if you know your time is short, you better clear your schedule Clear your mind, get rid of the junk, and you better get praying. You better be close to God. He says, be, be, so, be of sober mind, be alert. Recognize that your relationship with God, who is Lord of your life, is important. Stop thinking about it later. Think about it now. Because the end is coming. He says, above all, I love that. Above all, you've got to love each other deeply. The number one thing that Jesus said, he said, if you're going to be my disciple, the number one thing I want people to know is that you're going to love each other the way that I have loved you. It's more important than anything. He says, love each other deeply. Be hospitable to one another. That's one of the things I love about this church. I love the spirit when it comes to the church here in the desert. When somebody's hurt, if somebody's had surgery, you know, we, when we first moved here, I know we had like, we got sickness, we... Kelsey got, got her gallbladder removed. We had a baby. We had, we had all these things that happened. And we had like three weeks worth of meals that were just lined up and ready to go. I love that heart and that spirit in this church. There is such an attitude and an atmosphere to be hospitable and to consider one another. But he also brings up another side of this, guys. He says, look, if you're going to love each other, it's not just when things get hard and we need to help each other. He says, there needs to be a spirit in here that we need to address. If you are a disciple of Jesus and he is Lord of your life, you better be using your gifts to serve. If Jesus is Lord of your life, that means your life is not your own. You cannot show up to church on Sunday and call yourself a disciple or a Christian and do nothing. Jesus, this man that we're called to imitate, the man that's supposed to be running our lives, would not sit and observe in church. 
He would not show up late on Sundays, hope nobody notices, give a few hugs, and dip. There is always a way to serve. He says, and if you've been sitting on your hands, it's time to repent. If you've not served, if you have, a ki- if you have kids in Kingdom Kids and you've not served in years, repent. Go be a Kingdom Kids teacher. They need you. If you can sing and you can be a part of a worship team, come find me so that we can, so that we can go after making our worship something awesome to God. Every single one of you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have something to give. You are important. You are valuable to what God is doing in the fabric of this church. To sit there and believe that it's not means Jesus isn't Lord of your life. If you don't know what to do, i got a simple solution. Ask. You can ask five people and and you'll find things to do. Let's continue reading. Verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or of any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I want to pause there for a second. He basically saying, look, if times get hard, don't be shocked. It's going to happen. Matter of fact, Jesus promised it was going to happen. He said, if they insulted you, whoop de doo they insulted me. But every time it still feels like it's a bit of a surprise, right? When life goes hard and gets hard and it hits you in the mouth, every, all of us kind of respond like, wait, what? God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. But as, Paul, as Peter talks about here, he says, look, if you're suffering, though, he says, man, you should thank God that you get to participate in the sufferings like Jesus did. Paul talks about that in Philippians. At the end of his life, what he realized, he said, look, I don't want to just think like Jesus. He says, I want to suffer like Christ, if only that I may gain the hope of what waits me in the future. We spend so much of our lives running from pain. Over and over and over again in this book, in five short chapters, Peter says, what are you running from? This, is, this may make you the most like Jesus that you will ever be on this earth. And you're trying to avoid it. Thank God that we get to suffer like him. Let's read, let's read the rest of chapter five here. To the elders among you, I appeal as fellow elder and as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I want to stop there for a quick second, because I think this is an important thing to note here. Peter takes a second to get away from the whole church and uh, and all disciples, and he talks specifically to the leaders. That starts first with Scott and I as the ministers and the leaders of this church, to be mindful of our role as shepherds. But I want to point something out here, though, too. I think part of what he's trying to do here is address even even the lay leaders that are here in the church. And I am so grateful for the family group and small group leaders that we got here in the church. I don't know if you notice what he talks about here. He's encouraging the leaders in the church to take on a role that is not an easy role, to shepherd you guys. If you're a family group leader or a small group leader, raise your hand. I want to give a round of applause to these men and women that are here. I know there's more that are, that are in Kingdom Kids and stuff, but they are taking on an incredibly noble task in this church. And as he's talking about here, he says, look, those of you who are younger, I think that could be spiritually, it could be maturity-wise, whatever. He says, you need to submit yourselves to those that God has put in your life to shepherd you. Yeah. Hebrews says, make their work a joy. Amen. Says, we, need to be, we need to be a, straight, a set of encouragement to those people that God has put as shepherds in this church. Let's keep reading. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Love that verse. If you don't have that one memorized, you need to. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. We're coming in for a landing here. What Peter does here is he's reminding us that we are in a battle. And we're in a battle against an enemy that is no joke. It says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Waiting patiently for each and every one of us in this room. Satan is looking to destroy you. And like all the things that were mentioned already in this book, he said he'll use, he'll use a job, he'll use your marriage, he'll use life getting hard, he'll use anything that he can because he hates what is happening right here in this room. He's a lion that wants to tear you apart. And for those of us that aren't really familiar with the way lions hunt, they're patient. They don't ever attack the strongest ones. They don't ever attack the herd. They go for the ones that are off by themselves. The ones away from the body. The ones that are, the ones that are off trying to figure it out on their own. The weak ones. The young ones. The sick ones. The older ones. The ones that think that they can just be on their own and be okay. Those are the ones that lions attack. And if they can't find that, they will chase after the group to make one run away. That's how Satan comes after each and every one of us. 
But what he's trying to remind us of here is that we get to stand firm. We can stand in front of this lion called Satan and stand our ground with Jesus as Lord. He's saying, look, you can stand firm by being close to God. Praying, be sober, be, be alert in your mind so that you can pray, so you can make sure you are connected to your Heavenly Father. But he also says you can do it by standing together. There's strength in what is happening here in this room. But if you're out there, you don't get to feel it. He says to pray. He says be humble with one another. He says remember that you are not alone. Your brothers and sisters all over the world. From coast to coast, from the Middle East to Canada to South America. Your brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, they're going through the exact same kinds of things we are. But if you're on the outskirts, if you're alone, it's easy to forget that. We need each other. People who have fought the lion, they know this. Quiet times aren't optional. Prayer isn't optional. Church isn't optional. Discipling relationships, real, real talking, being open, that's not optional. Midweek isn't optional. These are active defenses that help you to stand your ground against a lion that's waiting to eat you apart. And then Peter ends this letter. We're going to finish it up here. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that, is, that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, Babylon's a reference to Rome, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter ends this letter by reminding us to stand fast and firm in the grace of God. If Jesus is on the throne of your life, that means that's what we get to enjoy. The peace and security, the favor that can only come from God, that only comes from Jesus being on the throne of your life. And his love, his favor, his grace, that's the reason why every day that, that saying, that phrase, Jesus is Lord, is not something you say at your baptism. It's something we say every single day of our lives. It's not something you just said when you were single or when you were younger or when life is going our way. Jesus is Lord always and forever. If you've been wrestling with this, it's time to get refocused. It's time to get help to put Jesus back on the throne. Because as, as it was said there, he's not going to take it. He might be throwing things into your life to try to get your attention and go, hey, 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 wake up. The path you're on is going to end with you being in that mouth. But he's never going to take the seat of the throne. 
We have to give it to him. If you don't know where you're at, talk to somebody. Don't just sit here. If you don't know if you've ever made Jesus Lord of your life, the awesome thing about this is you can start today. Talk to someone that invited you out. Start studying the Bible. Learn what the Lordship of Jesus really looks like. For those of us that have been disciples, and I don't care if you've been a Christian for, for six months, if you've been a Christian for a week like Ronnie, if you've been a Christian for 30 years, is Jesus Lord of your life now? Let's answer this question confidently. Because Jesus paid an ultimate price that every day we get to say these words. I love you all. Let's close out in a word of prayer. And then Gonzalo is going to come finish up the service for us. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the incredible power of your word. That God, that, that you meet us where we're at. That you see us in our struggles. That, that as Peter was even writing this letter 2,000 years ago, it still applies to us today. It still causes us to beg the question of, of the lordship of Jesus in our lives. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room. I pray that you will strengthen us, that you will help us to be humble with you and with one another. God, that if, if you have not been Lord of our lives, Father, that we can recommit to you as the Lord of our lives again. God, that you will use us. You will, you will move in us through our, our jobs, through our schools, through our marriages, through, through our one another relationships to change this world, God, because you have something so much greater in store for us. We love you so much. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.